In preparation for the message today, we are going to be reading Job 28, verses 12 through 28. But where can wisdom be found, and where is understanding located? No one can know its value, since it cannot be found in the land of the living. The ocean depths say, it's not in me, while the sea declares, I don't have it. Gold cannot be exchanged for it, and silver cannot be weighed out for its price. Wisdom cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Gold and glass do not compare with it, and articles of fine gold cannot be exchanged for it. Coral and quartz are not worth mentioning. The price of wisdom is beyond pearls. Topaz from Kush cannot compare with it, and it cannot be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is understanding located? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, we have heard news of it with our ears, but God understands the way to wisdom and he knows its location. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When God fixed the weight of the wind and distributed the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, he considered wisdom and evaluated it. He established it and examined it. He said to mankind, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn from evil is understanding. All right, I think that means you can hear me. <clears throat> thankful for Megan reading the scripture this morning if you're <clears throat> joining us for the first time this week or if you're joining us for the first time online Pastor Matt is in California his son Reed had his first service this morning at his church in California and um, they moved there they were in for the last three years. I think they've been in Wisconsin, which is, I think, the exact opposite of Palau. Like, you wear sandals and shorts in Palau all the time, and there's critters that you flee from. Well, I think once you live there, you get used to them. And in Wisconsin, um, they hunt critters and instead of living with them, and it's cold all the time, uh, except for July 4th. That's their summer. They get to enjoy that. So now he's in California. That's probably somewhere between uh, the Pacific and Wisconsin. So Matt sends his greetings, and I'm grateful that he could be there with his son, help him move cross-country. I've really enjoyed the series that we've been in in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Specifically, I've enjoyed the theme, Walking in Wisdom. And that is the way that I think about the imagery of walking in wisdom. It's a walk. It's a journey. And the fact that God is with you all along the way is one of the blessed parts about it being a journey. And so as Matt said, it's like a dance. We keep in step. We follow his lead through the journey. And 1 Corinthians talks, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and if you've been with us in the series, you know 
that they were facing a lot of things that we're facing today. Uh, the culture coming in to the culture's philosophy coming in to the church. And they were struggling things with pride and division and a world system creeping into their lives. And Paul addresses this with the idea that they should have a different kind of wisdom, a wisdom that may seem foolish to the world, but a wisdom that contains the power of the cross and the power of the gospel. And last week, Matt's thesis was built on this question, who are you to judge? And the takeaway was this, with the world, with the word, excuse me, with the word and the spirit, you are equipped in every way to make judgments and do it in the right way. And I especially love that, past, that last part, you are equipped to do it in the right way. And one of my favorite verses so far in 1 Corinthians was one that he referenced last week, and it's 2.15, and it says, the spiritual person can evaluate everything. <clears throat> so what I would like to do today is to build upon that. And one of the questions that I was asking, and Matt said the pushback is you ask questions. One of the questions I was asking was, does it have to be spiritual wisdom? I think as we navigate the passages coming up, the temptation will be this, to rely on our own reasoning, to rely on our own common sense. Maybe you rely on your education. Maybe you went to college or got a master's degree or got a doctorate. <clears throat> Maybe the temptation will be to rely on popular opinion. What do the experts have to say? Or maybe you've done your research. You know the science. Or maybe the temptation is to, ca to cave in to cultural norms. Does it really have to be spiritual wisdom? So I've titled this message today, Don't Underestimate the Value of Spiritual Wisdom. And I think that's what we want to look at, what Job has to say that we should not underestimate the value of spiritual wisdom. <clears throat> maybe you've heard this story, a young man was becoming the new bank president of a financial institution. And before he began, he wanted to meet with his predecessor, who he's taking his place. And he was retiring. And so he had this question for the former bank president. How did you become so successful? His predecessor replied with these two words, good decisions. And so logically, the young man replied, how does one come to make good decisions? The predecessor said, experience. And so he asked this question, how does one gain experience? And the predecessor said, bad decisions. You see, I don't think anyone here today that's listening wants to make bad decisions. As a matter of fact, there are many of us that are still working through consequences of previous bad decisions we've made. And the ability to make good decisions is what the Bible calls wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a whole book that minds the scope and the depth of wisdom. 
And so before getting into the text that Megan read in in Job 28, I would like to quickly define what are we talking about when we use this phrase wisdom, and specifically when we talk about spiritual wisdom. So I'd like to give you a general definition, and I say that because definitions can vary by people, by time, by the context, and even in the Bible that can be the case. So what's a general definition we'll work with for this message? I wrote this down, wisdom, the ability to perceive the true nature of a thing and then implement the will of God regarding it. So the ability to perceive the true nature of a thing, so what is really going on or see it for what it really is, and then be able to act on it in God's will. You could trim that down with this. You could say, read clearly what is going on and then make a right decision. Or you could make it shorter and just give it three parts. I would say that wisdom is factual knowledge, it's spiritual insight, and then it's resolve and courage to do it. Proverbs 1.7 begins it like this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So knowledge is what is really happening, what is true, not just information, but what is true. So to be wise begins with knowledge. But it also takes understanding. And Proverbs continues on and says, pay attention so that you may gain understanding. So you have knowledge, what is true, understanding, how do I handle the truth? Maybe your parents said this to you when you're growing up. Some people have book sense, but not common sense. Many of you have heard that phrase. Or maybe another way to put it sarcastically is there's a lot of brilliant, ignorant people out there. All right, so you have knowledge, but you have to have insight, and then you have courage to make the decision. And these three make up wisdom. And Matt shared last week that wisdom from the word led by the spirit makes you able to discern and judge properly. So if you have your Bible, turn to Job 28, because this is where we're going to build this, and there are some texts in there that I would like you to see for yourself. When Job thinks about spiritual wisdom and why you should not underestimate it or undervalue it, Job is coming from a place that he uh, went through severe suffering. And at the apex of the book of Job, he writes this poem about wisdom. He had already looked inwardly for answers. He had looked outwardly to his friends for answers. And he comes to the conclusion the only way to process life and its complexity is to look up for spiritual God-given wisdom. So here are the three areas that I would like to unpack. First, is it that rare? Secondly, where does it come from? And third, when we speak about wisdom, where do I start? Is it that rare? Where does it come from? And where do I start? So first, is it that rare? Verse number 12 said this, No one can know its value since it cannot be found in the land of the living. Verse 14 said, Gold cannot be exchanged for it and silver cannot be weighed out for its price. Verse number 19 says, Topaz 
cannot compare with it, and it cannot be valued in pure gold. It's so valuable that it cannot be purchased, and as a matter of fact, it can't even be compared to those things. Proverbs describes it like a hidden treasure. But Job here in the first stanza seems to indicate that you can't even dig it up. He uses the analogy, which we didn't read, but it's the whole first stanza in Job 28. He uses the analogy of a miner, and it says this, a miner probes the depths, the deepest recesses for ore in the gloomy darkness. He cuts a shaft from human habitation in places unknown to those who walk above ground. How does it happen that someone mines for gold or mines for treasure? Science, technology, reason. But where is wisdom found, Job asks. And it's actually a rhetorical question because he's saying it can't be found like this. Why not? In verse 13, it says, since it cannot be found in the land of the living. Think about that for a second. Wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living. So human reason can help us discover science, technology, philosophy, but it will never lead to wisdom. And that seems kind of like a controversial statement. Let me give you an example to explain what I'm talking about. Many leading philosophers will tell you this. There is no need for God. We have moved beyond that with our knowledge and our understanding. We don't need faith. We don't need God to look to our problems in this world. We've moved beyond that. That is for the weak-minded. Philosopher Alistair McIntyre illustrates it this way. He says, take a watch and ask this question. Is it a good watch? Someone might say, no. I just used it this morning to hammer a nail and it was terrible. Now you're thinking, someone would obviously reply to that and say, well, that's not fair because that's not what a watch is for. A watch is made for telling time. It's not made for hammering nails. And what McIntyre argues is this. Before you can answer the question, is it a good watch? You have to ask this question, what is a watch for? What is its purpose. Do you, do you see the connection there? Do you see before you can answer the question of what is right and what is wrong, and as we look in 1 Corinthians, in the church, in our society, and all of the issues that Paul is going to walk through, we have to come to a consensus of what is good behavior and bad behavior. What is life for? What is our purpose? But we live in a culture that says we're here by accident. We have no purpose. And what McIntyre was arguing with his watch illustration is that if that's our starting place, there's no way to come to a consensus of what is right and wrong. You might say what you think, but you can't force that on me. So he says that any society that says there's no God and all we need is science and human reasoning, that will only give us knowledge. It'll tell us what is, but it can't tell us how it 
ought to be. You will never get to wisdom. Why? Because wisdom is not found, Job says, in the land of the living. See, you have to deal, to deal with all the issues that Paul is discussing, immorality, issues of the heart, suffering, taking care of the needy. When you talk about that, no science, no studies, no tunneling, no technology will ever lead you to wisdom and to answer how should it be. And that's what makes spiritual wisdom very rare. So secondly, the question that I have is, what is the source? And Job digs into this. Do you remember in verse 12 I read earlier, it says, but where can wisdom come from or where can wisdom be found? In the second stanza, it says it differently. He says, then where does wisdom come from? So these are two questions. In the first stanza, he says, where can wisdom be found? In the second stanza, he says, where then does wisdom come from? Those are two different questions. So can I find wisdom if I look for it? And what Job says is no, because it's not found in the land of the living. But can I receive wisdom if I ask for it? Or can I receive wisdom if I listen for it? Well, that's a different question. In verse 23 then, Job answers it this way, but God understands the way to wisdom. In other words, it is only when God reveals it to us, we call that revelation, or we call that the working of the Spirit, that we will actually understand and find wisdom. If I was to explain it, I would say it like this. I don't know how many of you have read the book, The Hobbit, but for the illustration, it's not that important. If you've seen the movie, you will know that it's written by J.R.R. Tolkien, and Bilbo Baggins is the main character in The Hobbit. <clears throat> Does Bilbo Baggins know anything about Tolkien? If you asked Bilbo Baggins, what do you think of J.R. Tolkien, what would he reply? He would say, well, I don't know who that is. And you would say, well, you know, the person that wrote this story. And he would say, what, what story? Well, the, the story you're in. You, you see that Bilbo Baggins doesn't know anything about J.R. Tolkien unless he revealed himself in the book. So if there's a God, the answers to the meaning of life, the answers to right and wrong, will only be from something that God has revealed. And Job shows this at verse 24, 25, 26, 27, when he says there's an order to things on earth. He says this in verse 24, for he looks to the end of the earth, talking about God, sees everything under the heavens. When God fixed the weight of the wind, distributed the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning. So God made an order and a pattern to all things, spiritual, physical, moral. And verse 27 says, only he can examine and understand it all. 
And the only way then that we will fully understand it is with revealed wisdom that was written into our story. So as you navigate the subjects, there is one that knows the order to it all, physical, spiritual, moral. He knows the way it should be. And yet God also recognizes the ways in which it's marred upon this earth. We call that the creation and the fall. He knows how those fit together. And so he gives insight to us to the way that they all fit in. Let me show you a couple of scriptures that I think help illustrate this. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says this, and you know that from infancy, you have known the sacred scriptures, that is what is revealed of God, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So revelation from God, the scriptures, gives you wisdom unto or for salvation. So wisdom source is God, but it's also a means to God. Wisdom is a means of way of understanding, and it starts with revelation from God. So he writes himself into our story. So wisdom leads to an understanding of God that we would never have had without it being revealed to us. Another verse that explains it in a different way, John 8, 31, Jesus is talking to the Jews who have believed on him, and he says this, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's the same thing. My truth gives you freedom. How does God's truth give you freedom? You will be, uh, begin to understand the way it ought to be. And wisdom will then give you the, the, the freedom now to choose correctly. So then revealed truth gives you purpose, gives you meaning, gives you satisfaction in life that you were intended to enjoy. But the problem is sin. And Proverbs calls that folly. In Proverbs chapter 9, it describes the opposite of wisdom, which is folly. And it says this, folly is a rowdy woman. She's gullible and knows nothing. She sits by the doorway of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling to those who pass by, who go straight ahead on their paths. Whoever is inexperienced, enter here, she says. She says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten secretly is tasty. But he, the person that follows folly, doesn't know that the departed spirits are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So folly is loud. Have you been paying attention the last year? Folly is often the loudest voice. Folly is often the biggest crowd. Folly is often the biggest billboard. And folly is gullible. It says in Proverbs 9, folly is so ignorant that she isn't even aware of her ignorance. She's a, a counterfeit. Folly is deceptive and will often use the same language that wisdom does and distort it. 
and folly at the end leads to death and destruction. So here it is. Here's what folly will tell you in 1 Corinthians. Folly will say, everyone can choose for themselves, and that is fine. Folly will say, you have your rights, and you should fight for them. Folly will tell you in our study in 1 Corinthians, you need to take care of yourself first, and other people can fight for themselves. Folly will tell you, you can judge others, and love doesn't matter. Wisdom says, this is not the way it should be. This is not the way it ought to be. And in Proverbs 9, wisdom also calls out and says, leave inexperience and foolishness behind, and you will live. Because wisdom offers life. Not only eternal life, but life now and to the fullest Life eternal with the source of wisdom, God. Life in a place that is always as it should be. It's interesting that the source of wisdom is God, but when you get wisdom, it brings you back to knowing God. So, the last question. Where does it start? You will see all throughout the Bible the same thing as what it says in Job 28, and especially in the wisdom books of the Bible. Verse 18 says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn from evil is understanding. Proverbs 1.10 says it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't even get started on the path to wisdom without the fear of the Lord. So God is the source, but the fear of the Lord is our starting point. And, and what do we mean by that? Because I think the English word, the fear of the Lord, fear doesn't translate maybe to us what you would think it would mean because for a lot of us, we think of fear as being afraid of something that might hurt us or something that's bad. But there is also a trembling and awe in the presence of almighty good. So a proper fear of the Lord is this, reverencing and respecting God for his person and his position. In other words, treating God like the person he is. So you start with the fear of God, but you don't stay there because your respect brings wisdom. And remember what I said? What happens when you get wisdom? It brings you back to God and you start learning about God's love. You start learning about God's mercy you start learning about God's grace and God's goodness. Now look at verse 28. Verse 28 at the end says, and to turn from evil is understanding. Now how do I know if I'm actually fearing the Lord or I'm just talking about it? How do I know if my reverence or respect is real? You know it's real when you obey God, even when you don't feel like it. When there's pressure all around you to not follow God, and the world system is saying it's foolish to follow God, and there doesn't seem to be any advantage to doing what is right and turning from evil. Maybe I could share an illustration that would help explain it, and it's an illustration, as I tell it, you will find that I'm very familiar with. <clears throat> Let's say 
you're driving down the road at 80 miles an hour. So you're doing your thing, your 80 mile an hour thing, and suddenly you notice a few hundred yards up ahead on the side of the road, a police car. So you're doing your thing, 80 miles an hour. There's a police car. His lights aren't on. He's not hunting you down. He's just sitting there. All of a sudden, a whole bunch of things starts happening, right? Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Your mind kicks into gear and tells your right foot, maybe it should take off the gas a little bit. Maybe move over a little bit to the left and start applying the brakes. All of these things start going into motion. You see, the policeman's presence has produced in you a healthy respect for the law. The law says 70 miles an hour, and you insist, and when I say you, I'm really talking about me, okay? So you don't have to personalize that's part of the story, unless this is true about you. And all of you that are looking like, I don't know, you don't know what I'm talking about, we, we all know. So you're doing your 80 thing, and the law, you become a law unto yourself. But when the presence of the officer shows up, you adjust to the law because you respect his authority. You may not like his authority. You may not want his authority, but you respect his authority, and you adjust simply because he was there. Now, what would you say about the person a couple hundred yards ahead as a police officer, and instead, they hit the accelerator, and they start going 90? What would you call that person? I think you would call them a fool, wouldn't you? Because there was no reverence for the law, and if the lights weren't on yet, they were about to be on when he passed that officer. They soon would understand what it means to dishonor the authority. And here's where I'm trying to say, as many of us live lives like that. You know why? Because God's not in sight. We don't respect God in the way he should be. So on Sunday, we shake our head in agreement. This looks and sounds really good. But during the week, we struggle because we don't have God as a reference point wherever we go. I mentioned the last time that I was preaching in 2020, I started a Bible reading program called the Bible Recap. And this was a chronological reading of the Bible, but some of you are doing this. It has about a seven-minute recap each day of the passage you read. And when you get into Leviticus and Daniel and some of these passages, it can be hard to navigate what just happened. And the recap helps that. And it's been a huge blessing. And I would say even life-changing for me. But not just because of that. At the end of every podcast, she asked this question, what's your God shot? And that question is, where have you seen God in your reading today? Where, what have you seen him do What have you seen that tells you about him and how he's working in your life? And that's my favorite part. So going back to the illustration of the police officer, 
how do you know the speed the police officer would like you to go? It is written, right? I mean, just probably either a few hundred yards back or if this has happened to you, it's right in front of you when you see the police car. But what we tend to do is see it written and then keep our eyes open for him. And if we can't see him, we skip what is written. Has this ever happened to you? You see the sign, you look around, you don't see him, and then a little while later, bam, out of nowhere, he shows up. I know, as I said at the beginning, some of you are thinking, this sounds very personal, this illustration. It does. Not this week, though, by the grace of God, because either I was following what was written or there was nobody a couple hundred yards up ahead or there was someone sitting right over here that's 17 years old that is saying, Dad, well, maybe... I just brought my kids into the... They always say, don't bring us into the message. So, okay, you can ignore that part about it. But let me ask you this question. Why is the speed limit there? Why is it posted? Is it to get you? Is it there to make you miserable? Is it there so you will always be looking over your shoulder? No. There was someone or some group that thought this speed would be the best way for things to stay organized, a way to keep you safe, a way to get you home or where you're heading in the best place possible, a way that all the cars could be working together for the common good. Why does God want you to have wisdom and understand his plan for you and a respect for who he is? Is it to get you? No. God wants you to read his word and get wisdom and see him in it so that you can live a life with purpose and meaning, the one you were created for. So here it is. The fear of God, the respect for him. It's the starting place for wisdom. Wisdom is the insight to see the big picture of what is going on. And true wisdom, spiritual wisdom, comes from recognizing that God is the source of wisdom and his revealed word and spirit gives us the knowledge, understanding, and courage that leads to wisdom. So I would conclude with this. By God's grace... May we value the treasure that wisdom is. May we seek the source of wisdom and have courage to obey. Because in those decisions, wisdom will produce freedom. It'll produce meaning. It will produce purpose. It will produce life. And it will produce a true relationship with God, the source of wisdom. And as we navigate Paul's writings, may we not underestimate the value of spiritual wisdom the way it ought to be.